My name is Dr. McLean, and I teach at the Masters University, um, which is in Southern California, Santa Clarita. I know a lot of you are from Southern California. A lot of you are from Grace Community Church or other churches in that area, so you've heard of it, I'm sure. Um, but some of you may not have heard of it, and uh, I know that the TMU guys are going around giving out uh, like free stuff, so you want to check that out for sure. Um, I've been teaching at Masters for two years now. This is going to be my third year, and... Um, I did not go to master's. I went to Cedarville out in Ohio um, for my undergraduate, but uh, I am very much now um, a believer in master's. I really, really like the school. Um, I can't uh, speak for a lot of other Christian schools that I haven't been to, but I really, really um, love it, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that today. But um, I am a paleontologist, so that's a person that um, works on fossils, and specifically, I'm a vertebrate paleontologist, so that's a person that works on vertebrate animals, so like reptiles, mammals, birds, fish, amphibians. And um, one of the things that I'm uh, involved a lot with is dinosaurs and creationism with dinosaurs. Um, so that's what we're going to be talking about today, specifically feathered dinosaurs and creationism in the 21st century. Um, when, I, when people kept asking for my talk title, I kept telling them the 20th century, and I realized that that wasn't right. I keep forgetting what century we're in, but um, so 21st century is the right one. And uh, wow, I had a bunch of other things I want to start off saying. Oh, I remember what they were. Um, so you guys are at Regen. Um, I am so glad to be back at Regen. So I was um, the youth leader for like this group of people right here. And uh, like when I moved to, when I started at Masters, like I couldn't do that anymore. And so I was like, oh, you know, it come around in July and it's like, or August. Man, I really miss Regen. Like, that'd be really fun to go to Regen. So here I am. It's exciting. Um, so let's talk a little bit about this topic. And we're going we're gonna to start off by um, talking about what happens in the classroom. So um, how many of you in here go to public school? Okay, good number of you. How many of you are homeschooled? How many of you go to Christian school? Okay, how many of you are, are not going to school? Okay, I'm calling government for some of you. Um, so... The, uh, you run into issues in the classroom. Now, especially, I mean, those of you in public school or have been to public school, you're, of course, familiar with this, right? Um, in public school, you've learned about evolution, about a big tree of life, how humans are just one expression of um, the animals and plants that have existed. This is just an animal tree. Um, and that we would have evolved from other mammals, from reptiles, from amphibians, um, fish, down into the, single, or the uh, invertebrates and single-celled life forms. All things are... Um, related to each other. And you talk about millions of years um, in public school, and uh, we talk about how that's um, seemingly incompatible with Scripture, and we'll get into that a little bit later, too. Um, and in fact, depending on your teacher in public school, um, you may even get this idea of, you know, God is not permitted for discussion in science. Um, I mean, there's a lot of scientists out there that will tell you, you can't talk about God in a scientific setting. Um, it's just not, not, he's not allowed in that room. Um, so yeah, I mean, you guys get that, that public school, there's going to be some issues there. Um, but you know, there's issues in Christian school and homeschooling too, when it comes to these topics. Um, you might think like, well, I've got the Bible, I'm going to Christian school or I'm homeschooled, so I'm good, right? I don't need to, to learn about this stuff. But, oh, can I help you? No. Like this kind of recorder? Yeah, because they did not. Um, but when you talk about these kinds of things, um, let me give you an example. So you've probably seen something like this before on social media. Um, I know that many of you are no longer using Facebook, as that's the old person's game now. Um, but you've probably seen something on the internet about like, hey, Noah's Ark has been found. And look at this article. Noah's Ark, no apostrophe, has been found. Why are they keeping us in the dark? Here's a hint for you. Anytime you see an article that says something like, why are they keeping us in the dark? Or what aren't they telling us or something? That's probably not a very good article. Just, you know, straight up right there. But um, yeah, this isn't true. No one has found Noah's Ark. We don't know where it is. Um, we know that it landed in the mountains of Ararat, but that's, um, you know, people are still working geographically on figuring that out. Um, but yeah, we haven't found it. Um, maybe you've heard things like, oh, they found skeletons of giant humans, you know. Um, no, they haven't found skeletons of people bigger than, you know, seven foot something. Um, they just haven't found them. You know, people will tell you that, oh, there's human and dinosaur footprints together in a place in Texas called Paluxy. There's not. Um, people thought that for a while, but, um, you know, 
both evolutionists and creationists checked it out. And yeah, they're not real human footprints there. Um, maybe you've heard something like there was a canopy of water vapor that surrounded the earth before the flood and that the collapse of that is what caused the flood. Um, no, we don't think that's the case anymore. Back in the 70s and 80s, that was a very popular idea in creationism, but ever since the 90s, people have kind of thrown that out. But unfortunately, that kind of stuff doesn't get to um, general people in the church and doesn't get into Christian education, um, and that's unfortunate. So um, if we're going to understand these things and understand what, um, how the Bible informs our understanding of science, understanding creationism now, um, we need to answer some basic questions and think about some basic things. And the first one is, um, what about faith in science? Can you relate faith in science? Is there a conflict there? Um, here's a book written by a guy named Jerry Coyne. By the way, um, just because I show you a book up here doesn't mean you should read it. Um, I had this situation where I showed this book in another talk and somebody was like, oh, what was that book? I really want to get that. I'm like, well, it's, it's an atheist book. Um, so, I mean, I don't necessarily recommend it. But the whole point, the reason I'm showing you this is um, he says, faith versus fact, why science and religion are incompatible. Now, if you have any doubts, you can flip over the back of the book and Dawkins is on there like, this is one of my favorite books, you know. So this book, Jerry Coyne is saying, you can't believe in science, can't do science. He wouldn't say believe. You can't be a scientist or accept science and also be religious. It's not possible. But, I mean, we've had a lot of scientists over time. In fact, most of the major scientists before the 1900s, and even some of them during the 1900s, were Christians or at least people who believed in a God. Um, so I don't think it's impossible to do science and also be religious at the same way, same time. And um, another question we need to ask ourselves is how does scripture inform our understanding of science? So if you can have faith in science together, then how does the Bible help us understand these things? And then what should we do with that as a result? How does that help us live our lives? What does that mean for us in an everyday setting? Okay, so when you're dealing with science, science works under paradigms, which work under worldviews. And of course, I'm sure if you've been in the church at all for a period of time, you've heard about a worldview, Right. Um, and so there's kind of two overarching paradigms in thinking about the history of everything from a science perspective. So the naturalistic evolution paradigm is um, what you've seen before with like a tree of life, right? And the idea with this, it's, it's based in a philosophy called naturalism. And naturalism says there is no supernatural, okay? Um, or if there is a supernatural, it doesn't have any bearing on the life that we know. And so they would say the only things that exist are what you can see and touch. There's no miracles, there's no angels, there's no leprechauns. Um, they are saying, um, you, maybe you've heard of cosmos before, way, way back in the day with um, Carl Sagan. And he would say, the cosmos is all there ever, all there is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. So he said, like, the created thing, well, he wouldn't say the created things. The natural things around us, that's all there is, right? Um, now, when we read the Bible, we get a very different perspective, right? That there's a God. There's a God who steps in and makes things. There's a God who, even after he made things, he still steps in and does stuff. That's, that's what we read in the Bible. Um, and so I'm going to tell you, there's, there's kind of two different overarching narratives for how to understand um, science and the history of the earth and the universe. Um, now, of course, there are other alternatives. You can be a theistic evolutionist um, or an old earth creationist or other kinds of things, but those are adopting one of these two narratives and kind of just modifying them slightly. So we're going to kind of just look at these two big ones here. And there is a contrast between these things. Some people will tell you like, oh, you can just take the Bible and just like lengthen the days and fit in time there, or you can do different things like that. But, but let me show you the contrast between these two stories. And I used to do this with words, and then I discovered that I could do it with emojis and I haven't gone back. So in biblical creation, it says the earth is made first and then the sun. But in the nat naturalistic evolutionary model, the sun exists before you've got an earth that would have things like water or life. In the biblical creation story, plants exist before the sun or marine invertebrates like snails and stuff. But in naturalistic evolution, it's the complete opposite. Plants don't show up until after the sun and after marine invertebrates. In biblical creation, birds um, are created on day five, but land animals like this T-Rex would be day six. Um, in the evolutionary model, dinosaurs, some of them evolve into birds. 
And the biblical creation model, of course, humans are specially created, although without clothes, but I wasn't going to show that. Um, and then in the evolutionary model, um, of course, humans are evolving from other mammals, specifically other primates. And then in the creation model, you have six days and then 14 billion years for the other one. So obviously that's a pretty big contrast there. But I want you to see it's not just a time issue. People will tell you like, oh, you just fit the time in somewhere there. You can just find a way to fit the time. The thing is, these stories aren't the same. They're not, yeah, they feature some of the same characters maybe, but they're completely different plots. It's not the same story. It's like taking one sci-fi movie and then taking another sci-fi movie and you're like, well, they're both sci-fi, so they're the same story. Well, no, not necessarily. They, they could be very, very different stories. And in this case, they are. So the Christian worldview, specifically the, the biblical model, which you read in Genesis, gives us extra information for understanding the world around us. And one of the things it touches on is what we call the fall. And many of you are, of course, familiar with this. Um, Genesis chapter 3 records how um, Adam and Eve disobey God, and they rebel against him. And this is where sin and death enter the world. Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as through one man sin came into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And um, I like this little graphic from Answers in Genesis. Um, you know, what people will sometimes say is like, oh, you can shove all of the like um, fossils and everything. You can put them before Adam and Eve, before that creation event. But the problem is if you do that, you end up with this huge record of pain and disease and death and killing and struggle before Adam and Eve. Um, and so when you read the Genesis account, every day God makes something. He says, yeah, it's good. I like it. It pleases me. Well, that would be kind of weird for God to make like struggling, dying things and be like, yeah, that pleases me. I mean, that doesn't really fit with how we think of God, how God presents himself in the word. Now, humans and the rest of creation, because of the fall, are put under a curse. So take this and instead put it up here. And that's what we're going to see in a moment. Um, Romans 8. Man, I wish we could read that right now. Read it in your spare time, especially 19 through, um, I mean, the rest of the chapter, but definitely through the, the 20s, 26 or so. Um, it talks about how the creation is under a curse. It wants to be set free. And it is not, um, it's subjected to futility. It says it's struggling with the pains of childbirth, waiting to be set free by God. And then he says, Paul goes on to say, and we ourselves also grown inwardly and desire to be set free. Um, so that is the current state of the creation. Now we can ask, well, when we think about fossils, because we're going to get into those, um, these are clearly once living animals um, and plants. Uh, they're found all over the world. You get um, ones in the water, in the ocean, and ones on land. And so when were fossils made? Well, we already said they could have made before creation because that's just nonsense. Like, were they made before things were made? No. That, linguistically, what is that? Um, now, could they have been between the creation and the fall? Well, that's what we were just touching on. When you look at the fossil record, it's not just, hey, here's some animals that used to live. You see the life history of these things. So here are some bones from an archosauromorph animal from the, the Triassic rocks. And um, these vertebrae should be nice and clean and separate. But instead, they're all fused together, and it looks kind of nasty and gnarled. That's because this animal had some form of arthritis in its back, um, specifically the base of its tail. So that means every time this animal walked, every time it moved its tail, it would have been in pain. And that's not a very good existence, right? When we look at nature and we see things that, um, that don't seem to fit with a good and caring God, you know, things like um, parasites and disease and stuff like that, um, we say, well, that's because of the fall. And same thing here. So I don't think the fossils are coming before the fall either. And then we can ask ourselves, do we know of an event that could have buried millions of animals and plants and sediment and mud by, and placed their fossils on the continents? Well, do we? Do we? Okay, I'm done. All right, so yeah, it's the flood. Um, so now I'm not saying every fossil out there is made by the flood. In fact, there are tons of fossils that were not made by the flood. But if there were a worldwide flood, you would expect to get fossils as a result. And I think that's what we see. And the fossils we're going to talk about today are ones that are made by the flood. So going through all of this, I wanted to give you a framework so that we can jump into this discussion about feathered dinosaurs and what it means. 
Um, but we got to ask this question that we've been talking about from the beginning. Can you have faith and do science? Can you be a creationist and do science? Yeah, you can. Absolutely you can. I've been involved with work on T-Rex cannibalism. We climbed a mountain to find bones of a um, manatee or a dugong kind of animal up there in Southern California. Um, you can be a scientist and believe in the Bible. Now, you have to hold the certain ideas that are core ideas from Scripture. You can't let go of a real recent creation. You can't let go of separately created kinds of animals and plants, a literal atom, a literal fall and curse, a global flood. But guess what? Beyond that, you have the freedom to explore as a scientist. And that's cool. You have the freedom to ask questions. What was going on during the flood? How were different animals buried? How did animals live before the flood? How did they live after the flood? How did they get to the continents that they live on today? How did people spread out after the flood? Those kinds of questions you can ask and you can explore them and you don't have constraints there. It's great. So then we can jump into this question, well, why would a person who believes the Bible bother doing science? What's the point? And a lot of people think it's proving the Bible right. That's what you get a lot of times. When I, when I go and speak at places and they're like, oh yeah, thank you that you're out there proving the Bible right. Let me tell you something. The Bible doesn't need me or you or anyone else to prove it's right. The Bible is right. Okay? The Bible, reading it in and of itself, it confirms itself. Now, it's great to find things like archaeological discoveries that, that um, go along with what Scripture says. And we'll get to how those are helpful in a minute. But I want you to understand, it's, it's not about proving the Bible right. We do science to understand God's world better for a number of reasons. Number one, that helps us understand God better. When you read things like Psalm 19 or Psalm 104, and they talk about how the glory of God is displayed in his creation, that's a really cool thing that you can go out and look at nature and be like, wow, I see God in these things. I see how he was designing them, how he was creating them in his, uh, in his kindness and his wisdom. It also helps us make sense of the seeming discrepancies between God's word and his world. And that's where things like we talked about biblical archaeology would come in. So you read and you're like, hey, there's this guy Moses, and you know, there's this Exodus, and all the Egyptians drowned in the Red Sea. And you're like, I want to know. I mean, I believe that's true, so I should be able to find evidence of that. And so that people, that's what they're doing. And so those kinds of things can be very confirming for believers when you see like archaeological evidence, you know, they find a seal with Hezekiah's name on it. And it's like, that's cool. Yeah, the Bible is real, you know? It's not that it proves it right. It's that it's greater confidence for you, which is right there. It gives you greater confidence in God. And the part I get really excited about is that being a scientist as a creationist, you get to glorify God by exposing his glory to yourself and to other people. So when I dig up a dinosaur bone, and I think like, wow, not only, you know, an evolutionist looks at me and they say, wow, this used to belong to a real animal that we don't see anymore. That's really cool. But we can take a step beyond that. And we can say, God made this thing. God knew this was here. God knew we would find this. This can show God's glory in magnificent ways we can't even see today anymore. And then I can take that bone to a bunch of other people and say, look how cool God is. Look what God can do. And that's just incredibly fantastic. Now, all of that was our introduction. <laughs> because now we got to talk about feathered dinosaurs. Because feathered dinosaurs are a great example of how to do creation of science. And that's how we're going to use them today. So maybe you're not familiar with feathered dinosaurs. Here's the one that kickstarted the whole thing. This is Archaeopteryx. And I know the lighting in here isn't great, but you can make out its bones at least. Um, Archaeopteryx was found in the 1800s. Actually, when we were doing the Civil War here in the United States, the Germans were digging these things up. Um, so they uh, found this, um, several fossils. There's like 12 specimens now known. And um, you can see its skeleton, like I said, but maybe those, some of you can make out the wings here. Do you see some feathers coming off of the hands and then feathers coming off the tail? Okay, and then um, that's why they say, oh, it's a bird. Its name means ancient wing. But it's a weird bird because it's got fingers with claws on them. It's got teeth in its jaws and it's got a really long bony tail. Birds today don't have that. Um, if you've ever seen a turkey cooking in an oven, right? It doesn't have like a long tail that you have to like snap off to fit in the oven, right? It's, it's like just a little nub, okay? And that's called a pygostyle. All birds today have a pygostyle, so they can do this funny thing with their tail where they like fan out their feathers. Um, but Archaeopteryx has this long bony tail like a dinosaur. And so this and other fossils led evolutionists to say birds, like a modern crow, evolved from dinosaurs, specifically what we call the theropod dinosaurs, these meat-eating dinosaurs. 
And um, they've got a, a bunch of fossils that they say show this is the case. Now, when we hear a claim like that, we want to say, okay, let's go back to Scripture. This is how a creationist would operate. What does Scripture say? Does Scripture talk about birds? Okay, well, let's take a look. Yeah, actually, Genesis 1, 20-23 tells us that God made birds on day five of creation. And then the next passage talks about the sixth day, and it says God made land animals. So if you're reading that, what you get is that um, birds could not have evolved from land animals because they existed before them. Does that make sense? So birds were created first, and then land animals were created after birds. So this is the complete opposite of what we just talked about from the evolutionary perspective. So knowing that, we can make some predictions. This is what scientists do. So we say, okay, no other animals are going to look like birds. And you know, I look at birds today, and I'm like, yeah, that doesn't look like a bird. That's not a bird. That's not a bird. That's not a bird. That's not a bird. So I don't really see any other animals that look like birds today. So there's my prediction. Number two, there should be no transitional forms linking birds to any other animals because they're separately created. So those would be some predictions I might make. Now let's go and look at the fossils. So for a long time, Archaeopteryx was it. Like they found in the 1800s and then they just didn't have anything else remotely interesting until the 1990s. Um, And in the 1990s, they started finding dinosaurs, definite dinosaurs, this thing doesn't have wings or anything, but they had some really weird stuff on them. They had this fuzz. So this one was found in 1996. This is Um, And it's got this fuzz that goes all the way along its tail and its back and its neck. And um, people argued about what this was. They wanted to call it protofeathers. And a bunch of people said, no, 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 it's some kind of collagen. It's, it's like a frill, like an iguana. There are all kinds of ideas about it. Um, but in a similar animal, they found these things from Mongolia called Shivuya. And they tested it with um, they, they basically looked at its, its chemistry. Um, and what they found was that it was full of what's called beta keratin. Now, keratin is the stuff that makes up your fingernails and your hair, or like a rhino's horn, or all kinds of things, animal claws. That's keratin. Now, all those examples I just gave you are something called alpha keratin. So that's mammals. We have alpha keratin. Beta keratin is only found in reptiles and in birds. And the only structures known to only have beta keratin with no alpha keratin at all are feathers. And these filaments only have beta keratin in them. So they seem to be chemically very similar to feathers. And um, this is Sinornithosaurus. It also has some fuzz on it and some other fossils of it. Come on, here we go. Show definite feathers. So you can see all kinds of feathers on here coming off the arms. So it have little wings. Now, neither of these guys could fly for sure. I mean, they've got really tiny arms, but uh, they have fuzz and feathers on them. And then you have some really obvious feathers from coming out of China too. So this is Caudipteryx. Um, has feathers coming off the tail here and some feathers coming off the arm. So it'll look something like this. Um, and that thing's not flying anywhere either, as you can imagine. Um, yeah, that's not getting off the ground very high. Um, and people start wondering, well, what else has feathers? What other kinds of dinosaurs? So... Um, Here is one called Microraptor. This was a really, really amazing discovery in the 2000s. Um, Here's the original fossil. So you can see the head and the arms and the rib cage, and then here's a tail, and then here's some legs. And you can notice coming off the arms, look at these. Really beautiful feathers are preserved as fossils. And then, oddly enough, coming off the legs, too, are really long feathers. And then there's feathers on the end of the tail. And um, one of my creationist colleagues in Britain, he actually got to see... The original fossil, um, it was on display in Britain for a little bit, and he took some pictures of it for me too. So you can see some up-close pictures of the feathers here. And this thing has four wings. Now, we don't know of a bird today that does this, but sure enough, it's got like wings on its arms and wings on its legs. Um, and we, people think it's probably like a glider. It's probably not a super good flyer. Um, but yeah, this is a dinosaur. In fact, this is a dinosaur called a dromaeosaurid. Now, that name might not be familiar to you, but another member of that family, Dromaeosauridae, is probably very familiar to you, and that's Velociraptor. Now, if you saw Jurassic Park or Jurassic World or the new one, Jurassic World Fallen Canyon, which I haven't seen, so don't ask me any questions about it. Um, I don't know if I'm going to see it. I don't know. We'll talk about it later. Um, Velociraptor looks like this, right? Now, there's some problems with the way Velociraptor looks here. Number one, it should come up to your knees. It's the blue guy. 
This is a person waving at you. Hello, before they get eaten. Um, so that's a velociraptor. The animal that they're using in Jurassic Park is the size of a Utah raptor, which is the biggest of the dromaeosaurids. Um, so that's wrong. But even bigger deal has to do with this bone right here. So this is an ulna, an arm bone of a velociraptor. And when they looked up close, they found these bumps. And I know it's really hard to see because of the lighting. Um, and then they looked at bird bones and they found these bumps also. And that's where feathers attach. And so they said, hey, I think Velociraptor had feathers. And so this is a much more accurate picture of Velociraptor. And the thing is, even though they haven't found feathers directly on a Velociraptor fossil, lots of other members of its family, animals that look very, very similar to it, have feathers. So Microraptor and Genuine Long and Cynornithosaurus we already saw. So now the question is, well, how many dinosaurs have feathers? How far does this go? And you can create a dinosaur family tree here, and it's popping up all over the place. Here is a tyrannosauroid dinosaur. So you're familiar with T-Rex. This is a relative of T-Rex that has these super long filament things coming off of it. Here's an animal called a therizinosaur. It's basically like, um, how do you even explain this? Imagine a ground sloth. Maybe you don't know what that is. A really, really big sloth that doesn't walk, move very fast, and it's got giant claws, but then it's got a super long neck, and it's got a beak, and eats plants. Really weird animal. Um, here's this beak right here. So this guy's got all kinds of feathers coming off of it everywhere. So what do we do now? Well, we weren't expecting to find dinosaurs with feathers. We thought feathers were a unique bird thing. So there's a few things we can do. We can cry foul. And I know that's a pun. Um, so some people say all of these fossils are fake. That's what some people say. Um, and so there, well, there was a real fake, and I know that's confusing, but there was a, a fake that, a fossil that turned out to be fake, okay? And that's called Archaeoraptor, and this is back in like 2001, or 98, I think is when they published it. And it came out of China, and basically the story is like this guy got it, he bought it, and he was like super excited about this. And so he called one of his paleontologist colleagues, like, we got to publish this. And the guy's like, well, let's calm down. Like, let's go through peer review. Let's have other people look at it. He's like, yeah, whatever, and calls National Geographic and has them write a front page article about this animal. And then, of course, when it actually goes through peer review, a bunch of people say, no, 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 this is a composite fossil. In fact, it's pretty obvious. It's all broken up. And you can see, like, this part is part of a bird, and then down here is part of a dinosaur. And they just, like, glued it together. Um, so, yeah, that's unfortunate. But here's the thing I want you to notice. It wasn't creationists that caught that this was a fake. It was evolutionists. Okay, they were doing their own fact checking because they didn't want to say something that wasn't true. They wanted to be accurate. Um, that's sure a fake example, but the rest of these look really real. People have done intense study in Archaeopteryx fossils, and they've even found original feather material still in place. They've been able to find melanosomes, which are the the things that cause color in organisms. They've been able to find them in feathers of some of these fossil animals. So, in order to fake that, would be insane. I mean, the the amount of detail would be impossible, and these fossils show that. So these things are not fake. This is an, another Archaeopteryx. These are real. Well, we could deny it. So some people just say, eh, they don't have feathers. Well, I mean, they, they do. So that's not having a very good Christian testimony if you're just like, I don't want to believe it. Well, it's there, right? Um, as a Christian, we should never be about denying evidence. Um, some people just ignore it. They're like, well, okay, whatever. And they just go on, you know, with the rest of their lives. But if we have a Christian worldview, that means it comes from God, right? The Bible comes from God and we can have confidence and our confidence should lead us to say, there is nothing out there that was not made by God, right? Everything has a relationship to the Christian worldview and we can have confidence to explore things and not be scared. So what do we do? We got to rethink our assumptions, We'll get there. But first, I want to show you one of the really coolest fossils that's come out recently. This is a chunk of amber, um, which is tree sap that gets turned into a rock, basically. And you can see there's two ants here. See them? Stuck in there. And this thing right here is a feathered tail. Um, and in fact, the amber is so cool. It preserves such good detail. You can zoom in on these things, and you can see each little individual feather with all the little barbs coming off of them. And the detail here is really, really cool. The thing is, this is a long, bony tail. And in fact, it looks like it's from a dinosaur, not a bird. Um, so you're really beyond the point now of saying that there aren't feathered dinosaurs. There are. So we need to rethink our assumptions. We went wrong somewhere. So our first assumption, we said dinosaurs can't look like birds. We said there weren't to be anything else that looks like a bird. Well, why not? Why is that a problem? 
right? I mean, chimpanzees kind of look like us and they're still around, right? It's not a problem that they exist. I'm not, I'm not like trying to oppose them, you know? Um, yeah, maybe they did look a lot like birds. Okay, well, today only birds have feathers, but who's to say in the past what had feathers? There's no rule that says only a bird can have a feather. We decided in our minds that for a dinosaur to have feathers means that it's turning into a bird, but maybe not. Maybe it's just the way God made them. It's not necessarily the case. And our second assumption we made is that there are no transitional forms between birds and other animals. Okay, so what we said was, here's a dinosaur, here's a bird, this is going to be a gap that's unfilled. Now, of course, they found Archaeopteryx, but it's like, okay, there's still a huge gap on either side of this. But over time, this is kind of filled in. And sure, you could interpret that as evolution. But we know from Scripture that birds did not evolve from land-dwelling ancestors. So what do we do with this? Well, it's not a problem. Why can't there be animals that look like they're intermediate? That's not an issue. I mean, you could pick any animal today. A seal kind of looks like it's half dog, half, you know, some other weird thing in the ocean, right? Um, I mean, you can pick all kinds of animals that look like they're intermediate between other ones. That's not an issue for creation. In fact, back in the day, if you go back to the Middle Ages, people thought they believed in this like continuity of life. And they thought that any animal that could exist, God had made it somewhere. So they believed in like underwater people and like horses that had fishtails and like three-headed people. They believed in all kinds of weird stuff. They just thought it'd be out there. And so when chimpanzees were discovered, I think like 1500s, nobody was like, that looks like a person. We must have evolved. The Bible's not true. No, they were just like, oh, cool. It's a monkey that kind of looks like a person. That's fun. You know, like they were just excited about it. They didn't stop to think, oh man, my whole worldview is shattered. It's only now that we're afraid of evolution that we're afraid of saying things can look like each other. But if this is the pattern God made, that's the pattern he made. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is that um, creationists can sometimes practice a little bit of uniformitarianism. So uniformitarianism is an evolutionary doctrine that says the present is the key to the past. So what they're saying is if you want to understand the past history of the earth, you look at the present and you can only use present thinking to explain the past. So here's the thing. If we're saying, well, only birds have feathers today, so no animal in the past could ever have feathers, we're actually using that kind of thinking. The present is not the key to the past. Here's a bird. Here's a mammal. Here's a crocodile. Here's a frog. Here's a fish. I'm done. No, just kidding. All right. So um, these animals are very separate from each other today, right? And so you might assume, well, maybe that there's never been anything that kind of jumps in these in-between spaces in the past. But it turns out when you look at the fossil record, there are things that kind of look like birds and kind of look like reptiles. There are things that kind of look like mammals and kind of look like reptiles. There are things that kind of look like amphibians and kind of look like reptiles and things that kind of look like amphibians and kind of look like fish. Wow, that's maybe unexpected. But is that a problem? Sure, you could make an evolutionary tree, but you could also just choose to see that, hey, there's a bigger design pattern that we didn't know was there. At this zoomed out scale, you can't see the individual divisions. But you know what? When you zoom in really close, you can see there are different created kinds of animals. For instance, all birds kind of look like each other, right? Like if you have a friend that like goes birding or you know somebody that does that and they're like, oh, that's a white-capped sparrow and that's a, and you're like, yeah, it looks like that one, right? Now the thing is, we know that God made different kinds of birds. They don't all look radically different from each other, right? So why are we not okay with there being different kinds of other animals? Let me give you an example. This is a bat, okay? A bat is a mammal. If you didn't know that before, you learned something today. Um, so bats have fur, they produce milk, they give birth to live young, they're a mammal. Um, when an evolutionist says a bat is a mammal, they're saying bats evolved from other mammals. When we say it's a mammal, we're just saying, hey, it shares features with things like whales and uh, red pandas and wombats, um, which you notice a bat and a wombat, very different. Um, so we're just saying these animals have a similar design plan. And you know what? When you add fossil mammals, they get weird, but they don't actually change that picture. You can still see that a wombat, even though a bat and a wombat are both a mammal, they clearly don't share a common ancestor. They're just separately created kinds of mammals. And even when you add in the things that mammals are supposed to evolve from, these things called stem mammals, hey, I can still tell the difference between this and this and this and this. There's still separate created kinds that fit into these bigger design bubbles that God made. And so created kinds 
Some species do share a common ancestor with other species. For instance, horses and zebras and donkeys. So you can breed horses and donkeys and you get a mule. Um, a zebra and a donkey would be a zonkey and a zebra and a horse would be a zorse. Um, and actually you can look at the fossil record and learn that there used to be a lot more types of horses and they used to be even more different than the ones today. And so that's cool. We can learn that. But you know what? There's still a boundary around this group. Sure, there's lots of different types of horses and they diversified, but a horse kind is a single kind that God made. And we can do the same thing with the feathered dinosaurs. So here's a bunch of the different groups of dinosaurs that are supposed to have feathers and there's birds down here. And we can look at one of them. Here's an oviraptorsaur. Um, and we can do some really complicated baromological analyses, which I won't go into explaining, other than to say, when things cluster together, they're more similar. And when they're far away from other things, they're very different from each other. And sure enough, all these pink things are oviraptorsaurs. They cluster together. They're very far away from things like Velociraptor or Archaeopteryx. And so that tells us, hey, that's probably a created kind. And when you do these analyses, as I've done, it turns out that pretty much every group, as you might expect, is its own created kind. There's multiple species in each created kind, but you know what? The groups that I recognized as being different families, that's basically the level of the created kind. And so even though, yeah, you could make an evolutionary story with this spectrum, you could say moving less bird-like to more bird-like, what we actually find are different created kinds of animals. And then, of course, there's lots of kinds of birds. Now, what have we actually learned? Why are we even talking about this? This is not science class. This is regen, right? It's summer. I did not come here to learn these things. All right. Well, let's get away with the quick things first. Okay, some dinosaurs had feathers. A dinosaur having feathers does not mean it evolved into a bird necessarily, and in fact doesn't. And animals that fall into the gap between reptiles and birds are not a problem for creationists. These things like transitional forms, they are not an issue. They're only an issue if you have the wrong assumptions. But let's get to some spiritual principles that we get out of this. Everybody, Christian or otherwise, can be guilty of allowing their biases to cloud their ability to correctly interpret evidence. And this is a really, really important point. I cannot stress it enough. Sometimes as Christians, we think we're immune to bias. Right? I believe the Bible, so I've got to be right on everything because the Bible's true. And um, I'm using a Christian worldview, so I'm always right, and the unbeliever is always wrong. No, that's not how it works. Um, yeah, sure, it's easy to see the bias of the unbeliever, right? Scripture is very clear that the natural man does not understand the things of God. Um, spiritually, they do not understand. But... Um, just because you're saved doesn't mean you're going to be right necessarily immediately on every single question that scripture touches on. Christians and even many, many people we really revere in church history, you know what? They were wrong on a lot of things. Do you know that Martin Luther, he said that if anyone believes that um, things revolve around the sun instead of the earth, that he's a heretic. That's what he said. You know what? It's because in his day, that's what people thought. But we've learned since then. And you know what? Scripture doesn't teach that everything revolves around the earth. That was an idea borrowed from Ptolemy in ancient Egypt and imposed on the scriptures, what we call eisegesis. So I'm not blaming Martin Luther. He wasn't an astronomer. He didn't know what was going on. But the thing is, we can sometimes have a belief in our head, run to the Bible and say, how can I support this belief? And then we find a way to make it happen. And we can be guilty of that in science and politics and health and education and art, anything, any field. So what can we do about that? First thing we can do is stop being afraid. You might be like, I'm not scared right now. Should I be scared? Um, what I mean is so much that drives our decision-making process and creation studies is fear. So I meet creationists who tell me, well, we can't say dinosaurs have feathers because then we're giving a point to the evolutionists. Guys, this isn't a game, right? We're not like playing basketball right now. Um, if evidence is out there and God made it, it's there. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. The Christian worldview is going to be the right way to understand reality. I don't have to be afraid. Scripture is true and God exists. You know, when I was a kid, um, I loved dinosaurs, which is why I became a paleontologist later. Um, but when it came to stuff like Archaeopteryx and Microraptor and Codopteryx, I was growing up when all these things were being found. Obviously not Archaeopteryx because I'd be like 200 years old. But the other ones, um, you know, I didn't like them and I would ignore them, and I'd read the dinosaur books, and I'd skip those parts. 
And it's because I didn't know what to do about it. It sounded too much like evolution to me. And now as an adult, I realize, man, that's, that's really sad because I neglected part of God's creation. God was trying to show his glory to the world through these things. And I'm like, no, no, thank you. It makes me uncomfortable. No, if God made it, it shows his glory and I want to expose that. And that leads us to our second point. What do we do then? Well, we've got to submit ourselves to scripture. Scripture, you know what? It doesn't talk about feathered dinosaurs. Um, I could just as easily as the people who are making, you know, the, the Bible saying that the sun revolves around the, the earth, I could do the same thing and say, well, the Bible teaches that feathered dinosaurs exist. No, it doesn't talk about them. Um, we want answers. So we go to scripture. It's our ultimate authority. But you know what? Scripture doesn't talk about every single thing we want it to talk about. And so we try to make logical jumps, but we don't have all the evidence. And so sometimes we make mistakes. And that's why we have the church. That's why we have theologians. We try and correct each other. We try and learn and grow. And so we need to be humble. We've got to recognize that we are not masters of what is and is not possible. That's God's role, okay? And this process involves us analyzing our own beliefs. Why do I believe this thing that I believe? Feather dinosaurs or politics or art. Is this in scripture? Is it interpretation from scripture? Is the interpretation sound? I've got to go back to the Bible as my foundation for everything. And let me tell you, the first step to being a heretic is always assuming that you're right on everything. You've got to go back to scripture and let it inform your understanding. And that leads me to our last point, which I really, really want to emphasize. Pursue answers, but be okay without getting all of them. You should pursue answers to the questions you have. If you have questions right now, Man, go to your leaders, go to the Bible, try and figure it out. That's a great thing. And you know what? That's what we do in science. That's what we do in studying the Bible. However, I can tell you with great certainty on this earth, you will never get all the answers. It's not possible. Now, that shouldn't discourage you. That doesn't mean give up looking. You should still look because you will get a lot of answers. It just means you have to live with the tension of knowing that some things are going to elude you. You're never going to totally get the Trinity. You're never going to totally understand how Jesus can be 100% God and 100% man. You got to accept some things by faith. You got to recognize, I don't have all the information there. You know, I know people who have left the faith because they couldn't find all the answers they wanted. It's like what they're trying to do is they're trying to hold God ransom. I won't believe in you unless you tell me this, unless you give me an answer as to why I'm going through this, as to why I am suffering and he is not. As, a, as to how it is that you did such and such in the Bible. And I want answers now. But you know what? You can't do that to God. Remember the book of Job. Here's Job, minding his own business, and his whole world falls apart, right? Now, we know, reading the Bible, what was going on, that God and Satan were talking to each other, and Satan's like, I bet Job will curse you if, you do these bad th- you know, if I do these bad things. And God's like, no, he's going to stay with it. He's going to stay true. But Job doesn't know that. He has no clue what's going on. And then his friends show up and his friends are like, look, Job, the problem is you're a sinner. You're a horrible sinner. You've done something immensely wrong because God would never do this to a good person. God would never let suffering happen to a good person. Only the wicked people suffer. Well, that's not true. (laughs) And that's part of what the book of Job is about. It's not just the wicked who suffer. Other people suffer too. And Job says, God, give me an answer. I know I didn't do anything horrendous to deserve this. So tell me why this is happening. And God finally shows up, Job 38. And you're reading it and you're like, yes, all this discourse. And finally, God is here. God's going to explain the whole thing and set it right. And you know what? God never tells Job why he was suffering. Never gives him the answer. Yet at the end of it, Job's cool with what he gets. Why? Because what Job needed to know, what we needed to know, is not why something is happening because that's not important. What we need to know is exactly what God told Job. You want to know what God told Job? Hey, I exist, I'm sovereign, I'm good, and I'm powerful. That's what you need. All you really need to know is that God loves you so much that he was willing to send his only son to die in your place and take the punishment you deserved so you could be adopted in his family. That's what you need to hear. Everything else Sure, it's great to have some information, but ultimately it pales in comparison to that. Let me tell you, the worst things you're enduring right now, and there can be some horrible things, and I'm sure some of you have endured some terrible things or will endure some terrible things, 
But when you get to heaven and you see the face of God, it won't matter anymore. Because it's God, right? And that's what God was telling Job, just trust me, it's okay. You don't have to have all the answers. Let me tell you, what's honoring to God isn't knowing in and of itself. It's knowing and obeying as a result. That's what God wants you to do. Now, really quickly, I want to plug TMU. Because you can study science at TMU, and you can do biology, and there's a ton of different emphases, and there's also newly added geoscience, which is what I'm going to be heading up. And maybe you want to come to TMU and you don't want to do science. That's fine. Science is not for everybody. But you know what? You have to take a science course, and you can take Essentials of Geology with me. Or you could take Essentials of Biology with that other guy. But you could take Essentials of Geology with me, um, which would be fun. Now, uh, why should you choose TMU? And I'm not just talking about science here. Why TMU? Let me tell you the experiences. Being in dorms with people who are committed to Christ. Being surrounded with people who love Jesus. That's a fantastic thing. You guys experience region right now. Think about that for years. Um, Think about going to class and having your professor pray for you. Being able to talk to your professor about life issues and having them care. That doesn't happen a lot of times at public schools. And you get work experience there. There's mission trips. And also, if you're in science, we do research. I take my students. I say, hey, we're going to do real research, and we're going to get published. She presented this at a conference um, two years ago, and actually she and I are presenting at a secular conference in Los Angeles in two weeks. Um, because her research was good, and they decided it was good enough, even though it was a secular conference. And then in the sciences, we also get to do some really cool field trips. We're going to go out to Grand Canyon, Death Valley, all kinds of fun things. Now, why else, TMU? I'll give you three things. The experiences, the faculty. Once again, your faculty care about you at TMU. That's fantastic. Your faculty are committed to the truths of Scripture, committed to showing you the glory of Christ. That is cool. And thirdly, the worldview, of course. You don't have to go there and wonder, what am I being indoctrinated about? What am I being fed that's not true? Your teachers will take you back to Scripture. Your chapel messages will take you back to Scripture, and you'll see how to think about things as different as science and art from a Christian perspective. And we are all done. And if you guys have any questions, you can give them to me, and at some point we'll have to switch. I don't know when that is. But thank you so much for listening. Yeah, you got a question. Yeah, so good question about like um, ancient cave paintings. So those are from people, um, and those are people that lived after the flood. So after the flood, um, you had Tower of Babel, right? People spread all over the earth, and people are, you know, we as people like to be creative. It's part of being created by God. And so we make art. And so people go and make cave paintings in Lascaux or in other places around the world. Yeah. I have. I've dug up T-Rex bones before. Yeah. Um, we got to um, dig up a bone of a T-Rex that was bitten by a T-Rex. That was pretty cool. Yeah. It's just, that's the way they're made. I mean, they're, they're in a group of animals that all have feathers, dromaeosaurids. Oh, how they use them? Um, I mean, they're probably mainly display and maybe like insulation, keeping warm, but I'm sure at least some of the smaller guys, micro-raptor and stuff, I'm sure they were gliding, jumping out of trees on top of animals and things. Just trying to prank them, you know? Um, but some of the guys were too big, I think, to, to get away with that. So, um, yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the way God made it. So I don't, I don't want to leave that answer like there, but um, it's drastically different than today. So our um, ecology today runs off of death. Everything requires death. The way God originally made it did not require, I think, people and animal death. I think you can get that from the Bible. And so um, what does that look like? It's really hard to imagine it. Um, in the same way that, you know what, one day, if you're a believer, you're going to live in the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, you'll never sin. Can you imagine that? 
Not just that you won't sin, but you won't even want to sin. It'll never even pop up in your mind. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how to have conversations with people where occasionally we don't talk about somebody's sin or we don't talk about um, something like that. Can you imagine what it's like to not have a sun or a moon anymore? I don't know. How do you measure time? Is there time? Dr. MacArthur talked about that. Um, it's like a giant moment, right? So we can't even imagine that. So that's what I would say. I think it's so drastically different. I think the fall and the curse so drastically changed the world that it's very difficult for us to picture what that would have been like. And I know that's not a super exciting like answer, but I mean, there are people working on those things, but that's part of what we talked about. You can't have answers about every little thing we want to know, but I want to know that too. Yeah. Oh, actually, I think you have a question back here. You already asked one. Right. So Noah did. Um, it said, take two of every kind of um, animals that have the breath of life in their nostrils on the ark. And so that would have included dinosaurs. So for instance, we talked about dromaeosaurids a few times today. We think that that combined with troodontids is a kind. So that includes animals like Velociraptor, Deinonychus, um, Dromaeosaurus, Microraptor. So only two representatives of that whole kind would have gone on the ark. So most species would have gone extinct. Um, but he preserved a few on the ark, and then for whatever reason, they died out afterwards. So we don't find their fossils after the flood, um, which makes me think they never got into big populations. I think they just didn't recover very well in the post-flood world. Um, I was talking to one of the emissions counselors the other day about frogs. There's like 6,300 species of frogs alive today that we know of, and that's more than all the types of mammals, more frogs. That's ridiculous. We don't need that many frogs, but there's that many frogs, right? Um, but you look at the fossil record and there's tons of different kinds of amphibians, all kinds of wild things with boomerang shaped heads and fins on their backs and just crazy stuff going on. But most of them are gone. So I think frogs are a disaster taxon. After the flood, most of these amphibians just couldn't recover. The environment was so different. They just died out and frogs were like, great, better for us. And they just took over. Um, and so I think our world today is very, very different than the, the pre-flood world. Yeah. That's a really good question. I think we are supposed to leave. Um, but what I'll say is that, um, you may have heard of like behemoth and leviathan. Um, I won't say those things are definite dinosaurs. Like people still debate about what those are. Um, but the Bible doesn't talk about a lot of animals that God made, you know? Um, so I think the reality is that, um, it doesn't talk about them super clearly, like we might want them to, but you know, most of the Bible is written long after animals have kind of settled down in their places, um, really Job is the only book that's written like a long, long time ago, you know? So we can talk more about it afterwards if you want. I just want to make sure people can get out because I just looked at the time and I'm like, oh my goodness, what have I done? Um, so thank you guys again. Um, hope you enjoy next breakout session.